0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman, and if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art, technology, and the intersection between them, but mostly we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin, as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. Guys, while we're winding down 2018 here at State of the Art, we're planning some new awesome shows and content and ideas for 2019, but we decided it would be awesome to re-air some of our greatest hits from this year of our show. This week, we're re-airing the episode featuring the most famous artist, aka Matty Moe. Maddie Moe is one of the most divisive artists today. This episode proves that he basically came into his artwork by using his background in digital marketing to inform his art. This episode's either going to piss you off or leave you thinking that Maddie's a genius. I don't know. I'm still not decided, but we picked this episode because you'll definitely finish it feeling something. So stay tuned and check out Matty Moe. Hey Matty Mo, it's great to have you on the
1: podcast. Hey Ethan, thanks for having me. So tell me, are you really the most famous artist, and and what does that even mean?
2: Well, if you type into Google who is the most famous artist amongst names like Picasso and Van Gogh and Warhol, you see me in the results, uh, the most famous artist. So... As far as Google is concerned, I might just be the most famous artist. And we're also living in a time where I can actually empirically measure whether or not I'm the most famous artist based on the number of impressions and followers and, and other such metrics I use to determine my fame. So I wouldn't say I'm the most famous artist just yet empirically, but that's
1: certainly my goal. How did you even come up with the idea for the name? I just typed into Google,
2: like how to become a famous artist, um, when I decided to get out of my tech career and try my hand at art. And what I found was that a lot of artists had been described as the most famous artist, but no one was actually the most famous artist.
1: Okay, very simple, very elegant. I love it. Let's dive into that. So your background before you were in tech, I mean, you know, I read about you, you're a, an investor, you were in marketing, you were a founder. Um, you know, what was that transition of your career to being an artist? And how did your influence in sort of your past career, if you will, influence you as an artist? Sure. Well, I was lucky to be at Stanford
2: in between 2004 and 2008 when major changes happened to humanity. Um, in 2006-ish, uh, YouTube was invented, the iPhone was invented, Facebook was invented. All of those platforms heralded a whole new wave of venture capital investment in building businesses on top of these platforms. And while I was at Stanford, I had the luck of uh, being in a class called the Facebook class, wherein I learned how to build Facebook apps, super viral Facebook apps. And fast forward six or seven years, I had built and started a bunch of companies related to uh, monetizing apps and monetizing this new, new volume of traffic that was happening online as a result of a smartphone and Facebook and YouTube. And uh, so started to build advertising technology businesses, had some success started to angel invest cuz that's what I saw all my mentors doing uh, and then around february of 2013 i was filmed stumbling around drunk and naked on a beach in india during a geek trip and that more or less ended my tech career
1: so that that sounds like an interesting story but more so like how did how did your career in marketing and as a founder now that you are, i guess maybe forced to go into being an artist as you say but how did that influence you as an artist and how did it make you maybe smarter as an artist or better or Um, just change your career?
2: Well, in the same way that many industries are being transformed by technology, Uber transforming uh, transportation, Airbnb transforming hospitality, art is going through uh, a a revolution too. Um, It's going through serious disruption as a result of the internet, which means that an artist can now distribute and sell their work much more efficiently than before where they had to take photos of their art, send them to galleries. Galleries had to then sell them to customers in face-to-face meetings. That's all changing. And so, you know, I I, I stopped being a tech entrepreneur because I was disgusted with this concept of tech CEO scrutinized for having fun. Like the idea that I wasn't allowed to have fun in the role I was playing professionally made me not want to play that role. So I got to thinking about another role I could play and I looked at all my artist friends and they seemed to be having a blast. So I decided to become an artist. So I Googled who is the most famous artist, how to become the most famous artist and realized no one's really disrupting art using marketing technology as an artist and so I made that my purpose.
1: That's awesome. Uh, where do you think, so your has been about making noise and then almost like using technology to capture that noise, I'd say is a good way to put it. I mean, you know, whether through imagery, social media, press. I mean, overall, like how do you think technology has played a role in your career now as an artist and your marketing strategy?
2: Well, what I've found is that uh, the news media, <clears throat> particularly these sites like BuzzFeed and Vice that are are Post, um, post-internet news media companies, they're always looking for stories. And what I started to notice as I was browsing the newsfeed on Facebook and on Instagram and, and other places is that a story doesn't really have to be something very in-depth. It just has to be an eye-grabbing headline such that the organization distributing that headline gets traffic back to their site to monetize using paid ads. So my goal as an artist started to focus around how to generate headlines. It wasn't so much about making noise. It was about making sure I can inject my art into a headline, contextualize my work as art by referencing greats and uh, past historical art figures, but then make sure my art becomes relevant in today, today's media culture by becoming a headline. And so... What I would do is I would think about which news source I was going after, what types of headlines they were interested in, and then I would reverse engineer what art I ought to be creating to make that happen. And so art art distributed through the news media becomes credible because the news media is seen as credible. Traditionally, art distributed through a gallerist was credible because a gallerist was seen as credible. So I've been able to... Um, to kind of forego the gallery loop by using media to create credibility for my work.
1: So, I mean, in that, I mean, you talk a lot about Facebook and media. I mean, is there a tech platform that, you know, has worked best for you in marketing your art?
2: I'd say Instagram was really strong uh, in the early days. Like in between 2000, like I, I was on Instagram, but I wasn't utilizing it to grow in between 2000. 10 in 2013, I was really utilizing it to brag about how awesome my life was, like the jets I was on and the yachts I was hanging out on and the rich people I was, I was friends with um, during my tech CEO days. Um, but in 2013, I started to use Instagram to distribute my work as the most famous artist. And I found that I was finding new customers. I, I was like building this audience and finding new customers and building a career And I sold many hundreds of pieces direct to consumer on Instagram. Um, That was really strong in the beginning. In the last few years, Instagram's algorithm has changed, which has made it more difficult to grow and has made it more difficult to surface in the the feed unless you're willing to pay for advertising. So I would definitely point to Instagram as one of the more profound uh, platforms for helping artists distribute their
1: cultural production. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, you talked about the class you took at Stanford, which was called the Facebook class. And, and, you know, you could argue now Facebook is kind of passe. It's not cool anymore. I mean, that could, you know, Vine just shut down. You know, perhaps that could happen to Instagram. I mean, platforms go, you know, in and out every day. How do do you think about that? And how does that affect your strategy for for marketing?
2: Well, being that I have a marketing background and I used to grow owned audiences for brands, I recognize that a multi-channel uh, multi-channel access to customers is important. So I've started to build out a robust CRM that captures my clients' phone numbers and emails and all the other data necessary to create touch points with those customers in, adv- in the future in the event that Instagram does go away. Now, Instagram is certainly a compelling distribution platform. Right now, I can post an image on Instagram and reach tens of thousands of people and potentially sell that that image or, or drum up interest in a, a show. Um, so it would be a shame if Instagram went away, but if any of these platforms go away, it leaves room for a new platform to grab consumers' attention. So as a as an entrepreneur and as an artist, I have to just be aware that all platforms eventually plateau and to keep eye, an eye on a new platform will be um, be fundamental to making sure that my career progresses.
1: Yeah, that's great. So I, I was watching a, a video that you did where you taught a class at, at the Sotheby's Institute for Art. And it's something that we share with all of our you know, artists and artists that I know. And, and you talked about, and I love this. Wait, you, you share that video with all your artists? Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's great. So okay. you talked about a data-driven approach to creating. What does that even mean and what does that process look like? You know, I mean, how do you use data to drive your process as an artist?
2: It comes down to two things. Art has to be aesthetically pleasing to sell and it has to be familiar or uh, contemporarily relevant. And so my belief is that I can look at aesthetic trends and culture trends and layer those two things together to create saleable art. And I've tried to do that with an AI project I've been working on with a few coders out of Stanford that I've worked on past businesses with. And you can read about that project, Forbes and Mashable, and and most recently and on the BBC uh, in the UK. But the general idea is like I can find work that's selling at art fairs or find work that's selling on online platforms and dissect what attributes that work has what is it about the color the size the materials the content of that work that makes it saleable and use deductive reasoning to figure out what those things are i don't need a big like algorithm crunching that information i can just use my eye and then start to make my work more saleable by taking into account those data points
1: I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, can you dive into that, like the, the the project with Stanford, or or more so, like, I mean, is this something that other artists can use, or does it only work for you?
2: I come from the school of like lean startups with Steve Blank and Eric Ries, where you're t- constantly iterating, and you're never you're never like developing a product too long without releasing it to the public and getting feedback. So I feel the same way about my art. I release early and often, I come up with a new concept, I execute on it quickly, it shouldn't take more than a day to execute on, and then I release it to my audience and they either like it or they don't. I don't feel shame if they don't like it, I just have a new data point as to what people don't want to see from me. So so long as I continue to iterate, I'm going to stumble upon a hit, because art is effectively a hit's business. Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst, they've made huge bodies of work, their ove is massive there's certain things that stand out. Jeff Koons, Balloon Dog, Damien Hurst's spots, or his butterfly paintings, or his spin paintings. Um, But they had a lot of misses along the way. So I guess the idea that you should lock yourself in a studio and generate 20 paintings for a gallery show without much data about whether or not customers actually want that art is an antiquated way of thinking. And artists ought to be using the distribution their distribution through Instagram and their direct access to customers to get feedback about how their art is being received such that they can make more saleable art to support continued creation of art.
1: I love that. I love the idea of Instagram almost being like an Insta feedback loop, you know that you put stuff out there and you see what works and you see what resonates. Have you ever done something where you you, you maybe you put something out there that you hadn't really created or that you had photoshopped and then like said okay like from that like I'm going to create this piece of work?
2: Yeah, well, probably my most, uh, my most visible project today. Well, it's hard to say if it's my most visible because I've had a couple good ones, but uh, the cash brick project, right? Did you see the cash brick project? Who who didn't so, see it? Okay, so fifteen. I, I guess it's like seventeen million views on Elite Daily now.
1: I feel like it's at the in the twenties. Yeah, it's, it
2: was a big project. A lot of people saw it. Like I can't go into an art fair anymore without people going. You're the guy that brought the million dollars in cash. Okay, so. I was sitting at home bored in like April of I guess it was 2016 last year. And I kept seeing on Instagram these these images that these rappers and celebrities were posting that felt very inauthentic, like a picture of a guy on a jet that was probably rented with a big bunch of big stacks of cash in front of them that probably wasn't real. And I started to think about like the Inauthenticity of social media in general. We've all heard it. Like we share only our most favorable moments. Like we share our success theater. We share like vacation porn. We share our best meals. We don't share like the shitty parts of our lives on social media. So that got me thinking about the authenticity, about the objects that these so-called Instagram celebrities were, were were sharing to kind of bolster their perceived of uh, wealth amongst their, collect- their, their fans. And so <clears throat> I saw this $100,000 brick of cash and I got to thinking like I could make something like that and just post it online and list it for sale and see if someone buys it. So that was one of those projects where like I kinda made it but I didn't really, I posted it online and then I sold $60,000 worth of $5,000 cash bricks in less than 12 hours direct to my Instagram followers on a product that wasn't even real. Wow. That's. And so so that's that's like one example. And like I I Photoshop things all the time and I release them to my audience. And if someone likes it and they want to buy it, I just say, hey, you know what? Uh, This one isn't available, but I can make you something that will look similar. Um, And with all commissions, you you don't really get a choice once it's delivered. So you better like it.
1: Yeah. Free pay. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I, you know, yeah, we get rid of that return policy. So and I love this. I love, I, I watch the video. It's hilarious. And the point that you make is just so poignant in that it's like, they say it's all about how genuine you are and authenticity, but really that that's just not the case. And, you know, I find in working with emerging artists and, and, and then talking to galleries, there's this notion of, uh, oh, that's just wall decor. And, you know, I think there's three, three reasons people buy art. It's like the aesthetic reason, financial investment, and, and kind of like power and prestige. And that in this quote-unquote art world, at these art fairs, it's much more about the power and prestige, you know, than maybe the, the financial part. And not, not about the art, which is actually more aesthetic, is more about the, the art piece in itself. Um, and how, you know, you, you called that out. The reason I love what you're doing, Ethan, is that like art is just for the walls. Like It shouldn't be a
2: financial instrument, and it shouldn't be a, a means through which people can feel powerful and important. Now, it's become that. It is most definitely a financial instrument, and it is most definitely a way to, um, to elevate yourself in the social sphere. But at the end of the day, artisans making work locally— and having people hang it on their walls because they need to decorate their blank walls is still a business, and it's still noble, and it's still fun, and it's still interesting. And I don't think that art, I, I think the, one of the reasons the institutionalized has kind of bastardized this idea that decorative art is, or bastardized decorative art, is that they don't stand to gain from it. But in reality, but in reality most people stand to gain from just having cool, interesting cultural pieces in their homes.
1: And I think we both agree probably like that's where they are just so off, because I would argue that if more people had whatever they would call wall decor in their home, that they would be more interested in art and therefore be more likely to go to a gallery, to go to a museum, to go to a cultural institution um, than they would if if they hadn't had the experience of owning a piece of, of quote unquote, wall decor.
2: Well, my whole thesis around the art business I'm building is around uh, upward disruption in a la Creighton. Clayton Christensen. And so the general idea is I want to capture customers early and often at low price points with the belief that those customers, as they appreciate their art, will become higher ticket purchasers with time. And so if the LTV of my thousand dollar customers becomes $50,000 over time, then I can afford to sell a thousand dollar painting at a much lower margin now with hopes that I monetize the back end. And so that comes down to like all this this marketing tech stuff,
1: and LTV being lifetime value of yeah. someone, yeah. And, and agreed, right? It's almost like I mean another thing to think about is business development as an artist. You know, you might say, okay, I'm going to take a loss on this first piece that I sell, believing that they're going to come back and that they're going to spend more of a time. But if I didn't give them, you know, the, almost that like gateway drug to to getting into art, then they would never come and buy a more expensive piece.
2: I'll never take a loss. What I will take is a uh, fair market value which is in reality the amount of labor and the amount of material that went into producing a work now the 5000 10000 dollar works that you you see at galleries they probably should be being sold for like 1500 2000 bucks and sell like sell like a, sell like a thousand works at 2000 bucks and you made 2 million dollars and you've got a thousand people that are interested in your business it's way harder to sell a work at 5000 or $10,000. So my whole thesis is around uh, producing new customers early and often so that we can monetize them down the road.
1: I love that. So another thing that I've read that you talk a lot about that the traditional art world views down upon is this idea of of working with brands and how as an artist, you are selling out if you work with Nike or Perrier, you know, I mean, talk to me more about, you know, how you view that and how you see moving forward, you know, perhaps artists working more with brands and how that affects sort of art in everyday life. I was just talking about this with a gallerist.
2: The, the idea that the art of the 16 and 1700s wasn't sellout art is a, a total misnomer because the church was the institution funding that type of work. And if you didn't fit in with the church, you didn't get the resources or the, the access to, uh, to, to roof, to ceilings, to paint. And therefore, you didn't go down in the pantheon as a great artist. And so now if we think about if we fast forward 400 years, 500 years, we're talking about artists who now have to get funding to produce their work and they're either dealing with an institution, the art institution which treats art as a financial instrument and a social class amplifier, or we're dealing with brands who need to sell things to people through visual imagery and compelling storytelling. Now, I don't really want to work with the art institution because they're way smarter and way more powerful and totally going to fuck me at the end of the day as an artist. However, brands, they're like the new church. They've got the resources and the distribution capabilities to enable artists to produce works at scale and to make sure those, art, those artworks are seen by tons of people. So, so actually, something I've come to terms with recently is that maybe the best place for an artist to be, the best position in the world for an artist Is actually CMO at a big brand. Think about think about having your ideas as an artist on billboards all over the country. No matter what product you're selling, you're going to be pushing culture forward by having your ideas seen at scale. So, I think that what's taught in art school about not selling out to brands, although it it happens with Yayu Kusama and Louis Vuitton and Ai Weiwei and Louis Vuitton and Jeff. Coons and Louis Vuitton um it it happens at the high end but it's taught that like if you're just getting started as an artist you should sell out totally think that's a fallacy
1: yeah and I agree I mean do you think that attitude changes anytime soon do you see it changing do you see what influence do you see artists working with brands having on you know like you talked about earlier I mean people buying two three hundred four dollar pieces of art and getting into art in general
2: I definitely see it changing. I, I've started a business called the Mural Agency, which is really a response to that change. Like The Mural Agency effectively helps brands find wall space and find artists and is a matchmaker to allow public art to happen. And most of that time, that public art is, is branded in some way. But brands are also giving up this idea that they need to have a Coca-Cola bottle in their public art. What they really need is a visual identity or some kind of activation in the real world that people with cell phones walking by can take pictures of and share online, which then gives that brand credibility amongst that sharer's peers. So we're seeing it happen at a massive scale right now, I don't know that galleries and the art institution want that to happen because they lose some control when an artist isn't reliant on a gallery to keep paying their paycheck. When an artist can go work with a brand and make $10,000, dollars $100,000 on the side, they can tell their galleries to go fuck themselves.
0: All right, everybody. We wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show. And we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love, and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million dollars. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com soda apply. That's Patreon.com/sota/apply. Thanks for checking us out, and back to the show. Okay, so and I'm going to dig deeper
1: there. I'm going to call you out. You applied to an art school. You applied to Yale. You have worked. I
2: haven't, I haven't applied yet. I'm, you haven't I,
1: applied yet. Okay, you've talked about applying. You uh, you work with galleries, traditional. What we'd all view as traditional galleries. I mean, how do you see the role of the gallery now and, and how do you see that changing over the course of the next 10 years? And what, what role do they play now and, and over the next 10 years?
2: Well, this so this goes back to my talk about um, using big data to to figure out what art is saleable. And I think technology is going to start to impact art in a way bigger way. So if Jeff Bezos is right, which it's hard to believe he isn't right, retail is going away. And traditionally, galleries provided a space through which collectors could come in and buy high ticket items. But collectors are now shifting online and willing to buy artworks up to three dollars and $5,000 sight unseen because there is credibility created by these platforms between artist and collector. Traditionally, the gallerist was the the source of credibility. If they have a retail environment, they must be serious. But what might end up happening? Retail gets crushed. Jeff Bezos finally figures out how to 3D print objects in people's homes. My buddy Jameson over at Phantasmo creates a 3D map of the world. Um, how cool would it be if as an artist, I could find contemporary aesthetic trends and contemporary cultural trends, layer them together, create an object in some kind of 3D software like Maya, upload that object to the cloud, someone could take a picture of their wall or take a render of their room and then walk up to their wall with their phone and see that high ticket item directly on their wall. They don't need to go to a gallery anymore. They can see up close and personal what this art object looks like and how it fits into their home. And then take it a step further. Then they press a button on their phone and it gets 3D printed using some type of like strong substrate in a factory around the corner from their house and then delivered the next day.
1: On Amazon Prime.
2: On Amazon Prime. Like that's where shit's going. Yeah. And so I don't see why I should be like laboring over a fucking painting with like actual oil paint that's dirty and canvas that is expensive to buy to make objects that are going to sit in storage until someone decides it's cool. I just want to go straight for the jugular. I want to figure <laughs> out how to sell art directly to the people at the time when they want it at an economical ec- economical and and rational price point. Like what if art was only as expensive as the computational energy taken to produce the art? And the material costs. Yeah. Then then art gets massively distributed because right now there's a, this huge arbitrage between like the price of the art and the actual value of the art. And contemporary art is the ultimate bubble. Like if you buy a painting because a gallery's told you, oh, this guy's paintings were five grand last year and now they're ten grand. They're only saying they're ten grand because they're saying they're ten grand. There's no val- There's no data. Right. Like Sotheby's isn't selling that stuff. It's kind of like a startup. Like just because your startup has raised subsequent rounds of funding doesn't mean it's worth shit on in reality. Like you could be a paper millionaire and be, and be worth 10 cents in reality.
1: Yeah. So, okay. But like, let's go back, you know, and think with the question, what is the role? So what is the role of the gallery? And you talked about Amazon specifically and retail is dead, but then again, Amazon just launched a bookstore. Amazon just bought Whole Foods. And so there's this, I would argue there's a, an interesting dialogue going around about the future of retail. One thing I think we could agree on is that it is more about experiences and creating experiences around. And so you see it with the Apple store and you see, you know, fashion retail doing that. So back to it, what is the role of the gallery? Are you saying that there is zero role for the gallery? Are you saying that the, the role will change?
2: I'm not saying there's zero role. I was just talking about like a very like Blade Runner future. And, and for I, the I, but I,
1: I'm buying in, you know, I'm buying in here. So, what, what, I, I, did, I didn't hear gallery in there. So does that mean there is no gallery?
2: In the short term, like what I've seen work really well is not partnering with a gallery because they take 50% of my sales because they have to pay an expensive rent on some piece of real estate, but rather figuring out which weekend I want to throw my show, finding a pop-up space, putting my art in it and distributing the message myself through influencers and my peers that I'm having a dope party. Like art can be sold that that way. So I think that the traditional gallery show, the traditional gallery offering might start to erode. And we're already seeing galleries close left and right. But the the idea of an event space to celebrate art and culture isn't going away because people want to gather. That's like a tribal, innate human thing.
1: That's a beautiful way to put it. You know, you saw this when the radio launched and the purists in the music industry thought that it would be the end of the concert. You know, everyone could listen to their home. Why would they go to a concert? But you you just answered the question, which is people want to gather, you know? And, And the experience of music in person is very different than it is on Spotify. And so, you know, I think in a way it will be, it can be a place that people gather. It can be a place that you experience the art in person, which you, you know, will feel different than doing it online. So for all you, for all you tech bros listening, create a pop-up event space marketplace.
2: And when I do my art, ICO, I will then buy that company from you for my token. And then we can build out the new art supply chain together.
1: Okay. So let's go down that. Let's take it up a step. So how do you see tech continuing to influence the art space? You just mentioned ICO. What is an ICO for people who don't know? And, and, how does that, along with other things, play a role?
2: An ICO is an initial coin offering, which is really should be called a token sale because ICO is kind of a uh, a cliche at this point. Um, and effectively what it is, is the ability to create a, a microeconomy using the blockchain protocol um, to uh, create some kind of exchange, like a, a, some decentralized way of... of um, transacting. And so
1: break it down for us. What does that mean? So I'm, I'm Ethan, I'm, Ethan. I'm an artist out there. What? Okay. So
2: here's how I see it working. Okay. I want to do an ICO, which is like a crowdsourced funding mechanism to create an incubator. And there's a company called Science Inc, which just did their own ICO around an incubator for blockchain startups. I want to do an incubator for art supply chain related startups using the ICO format, which allows me to crowdfund from a whole bunch of different people. Now, at the highest level, I have to have accredited investors investing fiat money into the ICO, but I can have anyone at any denomination invest cryptocurrency into my ICO. That then gives me funding to then, like 500 startups or any of these incubators, incubate a bunch of businesses along the supply chain. So when I started as an artist, I had to figure out how to get studio space. I had to figure out how to ship my work. I had to figure out how to archive and print my work. I had to figure out how to do licensing deals. I had to figure out how to uh, do a bunch of shit that where there's no infrastructure in place for the outsider artists like myself, enabled by the democratic effects of software, to succeed and scale their business. So I built these types of systems for myself. And then what I noticed is I could help other artists succeed. So I started incubating other artists and offering them these services and they would start paying me for these services and they're revenues would go from like 10 grand a year to 100 grand a year. But in going from 10 grand a year to 100 grand a year, I'm capturing quite a lot of that revenue generated through supply chain services. And so then what ends up happening is I do a second coin offering, where I incentivize artists to start using my differing services. So hey, artists, I'll give you these tokens, you should rent studio space for me, you should buy supplies for me, you should ship your art through me. And all I ask is that when you go to sell your art to a collector, I want you to sell it for my token. So a collector ends up having to convert their fiat money into cryptocurrency to buy into the marketplace. And as that gets going, it gets really strong and these network effects start happening. And if I incentivize enough artists to participate through the coin offering, then all of a sudden I've got myself a gigantic microeconomy around the democratic distribution of art. Wow.
1: (laughs) I think, I think I'm I need, I'm going to need to put some notes in the uh, episode so that people can do a little bit of background research on that. Well, let, let's talk yeah, about it. And that. also,
2: I might be full of shit. So <laughs> you, might, you
1: might be. But ICO, for those in the tech world, everyone knows it. For those in the art world, maybe people don't. It is something that everyone is, is talking about now. And one of the ways I've heard it talk about is through investing in art. I mean, you talked a little bit about this, but it's, you know, perhaps I don't have a million dollars to buy, you know, a Warhol, but... I could do an ICO buy a little piece of it.
2: Well, so there is a company called Messina's who just ICO'd and I think they raised 10 million bucks and they're Swiss and they're, they're effectively taking like Warhol's and Picasso's and Rembrandt's and they're subdividing them into fractional ownership where you could buy into that painting and then see it appreciate over time. um, And then sell your token or your shares in that artwork at any time. Now I, I don't necessarily like that model because it further turns art into a financial asset. And so, if if any artist is out there making their art with hopes that it becomes a financial asset, then they might as well just go start trading commodities. Um, and the the trouble is that in art school, all we see the media celebrating. I didn't go to art school, but I'm I'm, I'm making a generalization. All we see the media celebrating is the. The, the new highest uh, purchase of a Basquiat, the highest va- uh, cash value purchase of a Basquiat, or the incredibly expensive Jeff Kuhn sculpture. And so as long as the media and the art news and the art industry news are celebrating these like massive financial gains generated by art, we're going to be brainwashing the people at the earliest stages of their art career into believing that that's the end goal. I think the end goal is actually just having a lifestyle where you can make 150 or 200 grand a year doing what you love. That's like the digital nomad lifestyle, but we can do it as artists
1: and have your work, in, you know, influence other people's lives because they're actually acquiring it and your work is in more people's homes and more people are talking about you versus one or two collectors.
2: You know, to be honest, I don't give a fuck if it influences people's lives. I just want, like, if they've got a blank wall, I'd rather them have my art on their wall than someone someone else's else's art. And the reason they'd have my art is because they realize it's smart and there's a story behind it. And there's, like, intelligence that goes into it despite it being pretty damn simple.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a whole other discussion, but to the ICO, I mean, you know, one thing I heard you say earlier is about the gallery and they decide this piece is 10,000 and this piece is 20,000 just because they decided that. And an ICO offering could actually democratize that element of well-known art pieces, which you could say is a good thing.
2: It could for sure. So a token sale of an artwork might make the artwork Depreciate, or it might make the artwork increase in value, and that will be based on a consensus of what it's actually worth, based on all buyers in the universe willing to buy it. Like right now, which is
1: which is transparent. I mean, that's that's transparency and democratization.
2: Yeah, it's it's decentralized. Like right now, if I wanted if I had fifteen million bucks and wanted to buy a Rothko, and I went to like whoever's got a Rothko, Larry Gagosian or White Cube or Pearl Lamb or someone's got a Rothko, even Sotheby's. They'd give me a whole bunch of shit. They'd say like, "What else have you collected?" And like, da, 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 da. it's like, "I've got fifteen million bucks. Let me buy this shit." And right now, you can't. But if like, if I had fifteen million dollars in my cryptocurrency wallet, and I went to a marketplace and could only see all of the work available for fifteen million dollars or less, then I would see that that Rothko is available, and then I would make a bid on it, mm-hmm. which becomes a lot more transparent and a lot more interesting.
1: So, and I would say that's a positive influence. I mean, it, it disrupts and makes more transparent, you know, which is what technology does. It disrupts and makes it more transparent. The downside I think you talked about or pointed to was, you know, it might make the incentives for new artists incorrect and it might make it harder or people who don't have, you know, who only have $500 to want to invest in, in a Rothko rather than, you know, a cool new emerging artist. Uh, Okay, so you're saying that like rather than buying a, a new
2: emerging artist, people would put their 500 bucks into a rock coat. But that's a different category of people altogether. Like there's there are people that just invest in commodities and stocks and have no culture in their lives. I think really what we are where we're at is we're at a culture war. We have like Stefan Simkowitz said this in one of his lectures he gave at my museum of fake art. We are in a war for culture. Culture is being destroyed by the technocracy. The very people listening to this podcast are ruining culture. Why have you made $10 million off your Facebook stock and not decorated your apartment with cool shit that shares stories and serves as a a reference point to all of the interesting facets of your life? Why do you live on a fucking mattress in a two bedroom high rise and eat Soylent every day? Like that's fucking disgusting. That is not human nature. And so – Really, what we are is not fighting against the art institution. We're fighting for culture to survive. And so, my feeling is that artists need to hijack consumerism and the capitalistic nature of businesses to distribute their work in a very, like, not subversive, but like subliminal way to then influence culture more broadly. And like, maybe I'm crazy, but that's just.
1: No, I mean, I, I think, you know, well, I would say it's more than just people in the tech space listening to this. We have people in the art space and general audience, but uh, I like that you're speaking to that audience. And I think one thing, you know, that you hear about is the subjectivity of the price and value of arts. So that's something where perhaps ICOs could get more of the tech world interested or engaged with art i mean the other you could say maybe is ar and vr i mean that's an intersection where it's really hot in tech right now and then in art you see the tilt brush and others i mean how do you think about ar and, and vr
2: well i spoke to ar influencing kind of the purchaser's experience where you could map your room and then you could have your wall you have the very piece of art you want to buy on it uh, instantaneously um, i just went to lacma which is the la county museum of arts Uh, exhibition carney arena as part of their uh pst uh, celebrating latinos and and uh, latin american culture program across los angeles and i was in this vr experience where i went into this i can't i shouldn't like ruin it but basically it was real it felt very real it felt real to the point where i can't necessarily accurately say whether or not the life we're living right now is constructed by, by the matrix. Like That's how real VR is. And so like, VR is a really, in theory, it will become a cheap way to distribute experiences and to create empathy. And so in that sense, VR is going to be a really powerful means through which you can relate to other types of people that are much different than you. And so that'll be helpful for artists to be able to find source material. And it'll also be helpful for patrons to be able to empathize with artists and figure out what they go through in order to make their work. So I think that all of those techniques, technologies are going to, to grow our share. So it could have, it could go either way. They could grow our share of culture and we could win the culture war, or we could all become like trailer park stacked living creatures like we see in ready player one. And Mark Zuckerberg is the dude in charge of everything, you know, that would suck. I don't
1: know. It, now it's, I, I love how you're giving our listeners so much more than just art and tech to think about in, the, in this episode. I mean, everyone's going to walk away just scratching their head like, oh, gosh, what do I do right now? Um, yeah, is my life a simulation. Yeah, <laughs> there, there you go. For everyone listening, is it? So okay, let's but let's keep going and thinking of text influence on like the creation of art. You talked earlier about paintbrushes being expensive and canvases being expensive and storage. You know, do you see the future being all digital, or is there still a role for for analog?
2: Yeah, I mean, if 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 contemporary art is using the tools of your time to tell the stories of your time and nodding to the greats in order to contextualize your work as art. The tools of our time are all digital. I mean, I'm not a great digital artist, but I imagine that whoever's making these great uh, VR experiences and AR experiences are the artists of the future, because kids all grow up with a cell phone in their hands, and they're so used to experiencing the world through their cell phone and technology that the the more the more interesting technology content becomes, um, the more influential it becomes. So. Okay, there's that, and then there's like the artsies of the world who are trying to figure out how to, like, I guess, make all art accessible. But the problem is that they're like, they're funded by Larry Gagosian and and Dasha from the Russian oligarch, and those people have incentives that are tied to the uh, commodification and the the creation of art as an asset class. So, what was the question? I'm sorry. No, the question,
1: the question was digital, you know, is the future, is all art going to be created digitally or is there still going but to be a,
2: maybe, yeah, okay, so yes, eventually, you know, maybe we run out of oil pigment or like materials are so scarce that like, why would we, why would we continue to make and waste things if we don't have to, like maybe our planet won't even sustain the continued creation of canvas and we'll all have to go digital. Like if you're on Mars making art, it certainly doesn't look like an oil and canvas painting because you can't fucking take oil and canvas to Mars.
1: That's a, that's a great thing. When is art going to get on Mars? Um, so Elon, I,
2: if, Elon, if you're listening, send me, I'll be the first artist on Mars.
1: Right. And then, what is that? And I think you leave in 2021 and you get there by 2023. So.
2: Oh, I don't know if I'm ready to go that soon. No. <laughs>
1: What um okay I mean is there anything else I mean you mentioned artsy briefly like and you know other we've talked about AR VR ICO is there other artists companies spaces that you think are that you're excited about that are pushing the envelope ones that you think are you know maintaining the current system Yeah
2: no I <laughs> no I said yeah all I wanted to say all right talked about the crazy future I see maybe I'm a good artist maybe I'm not maybe I'm full of crap who knows.
1: I, I, I don't think that's the case, but I love it. So, all right, so we've, we've gotten everything out of you that weekend. You've laid it all out there. You're leaving the audience just with a lot to think about this week. I thought I was going to have a relaxing weekend here, but now I'm just I'm questioning the meaning of life. Um, let's jump into the rapid fire, okay? Okay. All right, here we go. One piece of advice you give to all artists to succeed.
2: Uh, get some real-world experience and then use that as your source material.
1: All right. Art will be as popular as music in? Never. All right. You're, you're, you're full of shit. (laughs) All right. You're a new addition to the crayon box. What color would you be and why? Uh, Pink because it's a nice color. Okay. And last, who's your favorite superhero? Elon Musk. Whoa. That's a first. All right. Love it, man. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure for the audience listening. I'm sure it's not hard because we can Google you, but how do we find you? Yeah, it would be
2: best to go to themostfamousartist.com or Google The Most Famous Artist or find me on Instagram and send me a DM and tell me what you thought of this podcast.
1: All right, Maddie Mo. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ethan. Take care.
0: All right, listeners. So what do you think? Is Maddie killing the soul of art or is he an uber genius who's pushing a new wave of artists who are savvy in this modern world of consumerism and technology? should more artists be thinking this way or should the world be updating itself to protect artists? I don't, I don't know. Uh, But if you have ideas, please get a hold of us on Twitter, Instagram at state of the arts. And as always, please give us a five-star review. If you like what we're doing, if you like this episode, it's the most helpful thing you can do for us to help us grow, to find other listeners like you who like what we're doing. So as always, this has been state of the art. Thank you so much.